We're starting a new series of sermons for the summer months. We're going to be looking at the book of Daniel. The title that I've chosen, Dare to be a Daniel, is not my creation. It comes from an 1873 song. And uh, somewhere before this summer's over, we're going to introduce that chorus and and uh, sing it. But, uh, you know, there's also a more modern version done by one of the gospel quartets that's really good too. And we might just figure out how to work that in. Uh, but we're going to be looking at Daniel, the life of Daniel, the little book in the Old Testament. And uh, so... And I did order, by by the way, a dozen of those little uh, copies of Daniel that you can journal right in and do your notes in, but they didn't get in in time, so hopefully they'll be in this week, and then you can go back and catch up your notes. Uh, but, uh, so, that's where we're at. 930 to 931 B.C. Solomon dies. And when King Solomon died, the kingdom that we had known as Israel was divided because his two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, were fighting with their own sides as to who would take control of the kingdom. And so it's at that time that Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom began to be known as Israel and the southern kingdom began to be known as Judah. The northern kingdom was the first to be taken into captivity. And they were exiled in 722 B.C. because of the wickedness and the idolatry that was actually encouraged by a succession of wicked kings. At that time, Ahaz was also leading the southern kingdom, Judah, and he was leading the southern kingdom in a way of idolatry. But soon, Hezekiah would become the king, succeed him, and then from 715 to about 605, Judah started vacillating back and forth. One good king, followed by a bad king, followed by a good king, And as we look at 2 Kings chapter 22, it begins with Josiah becoming the king. Now, Josiah was only eight years old when he became the king. So obviously, there was somebody pretty important behind him. Mama. And Josiah was one who began to lead the nation in a lot of reforms. They were all reforms in the direction of obedience. And yet in the very next chapter, 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 26, we're told, still the Lord did not turn from the burning of His great wrath by which His anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Remember who Manasseh was? Remember how Hezekiah, when he was king, had that visit from the prophet, and the prophet said, Hezekiah, guess what? 
you're going to die. And Hezekiah, in grief and repentance, oh no, Lord, please don't, don't let me die. Give me more life. This is always one of those stories that I go back to when I think, what would I do if a, if a doctor told me I'm going to die? Because Manasseh asked for more time to live. And God granted him that more time to live. Fifteen years. Or Hezekiah. Fifteen more years to live. And when Hezekiah died, Manasseh became king. And Manasseh was 12 years old. Do the math. Manasseh was born three years after Hezekiah was supposed to have died. And Manasseh was the wickedest king that Israel ever knew. So I'm going to be honest with you. And I know my wife doesn't like to hear it, but she's heard it from me many times. Doctors come and tell me that I have something that's going to take my life. I'm going to say, okay, thank you for letting me know that. And she and I are going to enjoy the last years of my life. I'm not going to be doing all of that fighting and doing kicking and screaming and trying to do whatever I can to stay alive. No. I've spent these years in ministry trying to help you understand how to live as a Christian. If I get told I'm going to die, I'm going to spend those years trying to help you understand how to die as a Christian. Because if Manasseh, Manasseh wouldn't have been born if Hezekiah had not asked for more years to live. And it all keeps going back to Manasseh. But Josiah's the king right now. And things are going good. He's doing reforms. But Josiah literally made a fatal mistake. He had been told by the prophet not to do what he did, but he did it anyway. He apparently trying to block Pharaoh Necho in his attempt to help the declining fortunes of the Assyrians at that time. He went out and King Josiah was killed in battle. And Eliakim, his son, was put in charge. But he was put in charge by Pharaoh Necho as a vassal ruler, one who was just there for the show. And that brings us to the beginning of the book of Daniel. As Daniel begins... The kingdoms have been divided. Israel has been taken into captivity. And now Judah also is falling. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, this is the son of Josiah that Pharaoh renamed. King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Sinclair Ferguson points out that the history of the story of Daniel is really introduced here with two statements. One that is historical and the other is theological. The historical is that Nebuchadnezzar, who was actually a person of history, a king that we know about, came 
in 605 BC and took over Judah. The third year of Jehoiakim's reign. But there's also, in addition to this horizontal historical dimension, there's a theological dimension that's being introduced there as well. And the Lord delivered or gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now for the next few months, we're going to look at the book of Daniel. And I hope you'll see that the message is far more than surviving a lion's den. It's more than a fiery furnace. It's more than even handwriting on a wall. That when we look at the message that is there for us, it's a message that illustrates, this is from Sinclair Ferguson as well, it illustrates the nature and blessings of a life lived in faithfulness to God's covenant under inhospitable conditions. Is this not where we are living today in the 21st century in the United States of America? In hospitable conditions. If you're living the Christian faith. And that's what the beauty of the book of Daniel is. And that's why I was really thrilled that it was chosen. Um, <coughs> Because there is so much in this book. Today's message is titled uh, the whole issue of are we going to compromise or somehow cooperate? Jesse and I just read Esther as we're traveling through the Bible again this year. And uh, quite an interesting story to say the least. But in the story of Esther... Now let's go back to that false understanding that many people have. In the book of Esther, things have been worked out so the Jews are going to be all destroyed. And Uncle Mordecai goes to Esther and he says, Esther, maybe you as a Jew have been placed in this position as the king's wife, the queen, for such a time as this. And she says, but, but if I go to the king and he doesn't raise the gold scepter, I will be killed. Mordecai says to Esther, don't think for a minute that if you choose not to go, that you and your family are going to be spared. But... God will raise up somebody. Now what's that say? You see, God doesn't micromanage the affairs of your life. You are free to choose. And so as we think about what's going on, yeah, I might not choose to respond as I should. But somebody else will be provided. But God's not going to override my freedom. I'm not here because God made me come here. 
I'm here because I believe this was what God wanted. And there was a call to come. But I could have just as easily have said no. In fact, the first time I did say no because I thought it was a part-time position and we had a daughter in high school and a son in college still. My good friend, Mark Mangano, published a commentary on the books of Daniel and Esther. Now, in case you didn't realize it, both of those books, Daniel and Esther, cover events from the same historical period known as the exile. And when we first encounter Daniel, he's in Babylon in training for a life of service. And when we first meet Esther, she's living in Susa, a prominent Persian capital, and soon to be King Xerxes' queen. Here's what Mark has written. He says the books of Daniel and Esther remind their readers that the forces of evil may prevail for a time or a season. But ultimately, God will be victorious. Are you experiencing that victory? Or are you struggling still with a lot of the negative forces that come upon us as a part of our daily living? Now, before we go digging into Daniel, I want to go to Psalm 137. Here's what Psalm 137 verses 1 to 4 say. And look at the time period when it was written. Remember, the Bible, Old Testament, is not in chronological order. Actually, 2 Chronicles is the last book that was written in the Old Testament. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered something. On the willows there, we hung up our lives. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And the psalmist says, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Isn't that the question that just burdens us at sometimes? How do we sing the Lord's song and praises living in a country that looks so different than the country that we grew up in? That has become so evil, so foreign to that which we believe. And so as we look at our text for today, we're going to see right from the beginning that things are not good. Verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. Listen, and some of the vessels of the house of God... He took with him. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Right from the very beginning, there's disaster. 
Remember, the underlying themes of Daniel are, first of all, the issue between Babylon and Jerusalem. The city of the world versus the city of God. And a conflict that is traced all the way through Scripture right to the book of Revelation. And the second theme has to do with the sovereign reign of God. Despite all appearances to the contrary. And even though Satan is the ruler of this world, God is the one who has written the final chapter. It's kind of like World War II. Once D-Day happened, once the, the shores of Normandy were invaded, we knew that the war was over. The victory was accomplished. It was just going to be a matter of working out the final battles and getting the peace treaty signed. And that war of D-Day has taken place in the cross with Jesus Christ. But Satan is still the ruler of this world. We are still in a very heavy, very strong demonic battle. They're striking you every day. And the more you think you're standing, the Bible says, the more prone you will be to falling. And that's what's happening here. Up to this point, the people of God had a notion about how God was going to fulfill His purposes for them. They were convinced that the royal line of David would be able to continue uninterrupted. But now, the kingdom had been divided. The prevailing peace of Jerusalem that had been fleeting at best was now shattered. The king surrendered. He was deported. The vessels of the temple, sacred vessels, were made sacrilege by placing them in the temple of a foreign god. And yet looking back to the big picture, for those of you that have followed my suggestions and reading through the Bible back in Deuteronomy didn't Moses say it was going to happen you could choose life but you're not going to and on that day when you don't you're going to be taken into exile and now that was taking place the fall of Jerusalem had been predicted and now being fulfilled. The judgments of God's covenant were being inaugurated. And yes, the exile was a judgment on Jehoiakim's reign, but the rot had begun long before. 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 1-4 to tells us that Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And then the narrator goes on to add, Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh. Several kings before. According to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon him. To outward appearances, Nebuchadnezzar was triumphant. God's name had been shamed. 
And this is a major disaster in anyone's understanding. So where do we go when disaster happens? Verses 3 to 7. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both to the royal, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael. He called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Youth from royal family, from nobility, likely to be leadership material. They had already demonstrated their intellectual proudness, but now they were going to be re-educated. And the aims were to, to religiously reprogram them. The language, the literature, the diet, all carried religious as well as cultural meanings. They were going to be brainwashed an attempt would be made simultaneously to weaken their prospect of a, of a capable future among the Israelites and potentially strengthen the Babylonian society. But not only that, they were all also going to be introduced to astrology and divination and other arts. So the young men needed to depend upon the promise of Isaiah. Isaiah 3. The reprogramming was inaugurated by the giving of these new names. Each of which was religiously significant. Because the new names spoke of the new gods. Bel, Nebu, and Aku. Whereas their other names had all been Hebrew names that meant Daniel, God is our judge. Hananiah, God has been gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. Azariah, God has helped. Their Jewish Hebrew names stripped from them and given heathen names. So here was the question. Would they be absorbed into the new culture and compromise? Would they withdraw? Or would they possibly confront? Would they allow this change of identity, no longer identified as God's children by their name, and of their destiny, now in Babylon, not Jerusalem, and that would all be reinforced by constant use, would they allow that to change who they were? Or would they find a way to cooperate without compromising? And that seems to be Daniel's choice. He probably heard the call of Jeremiah that had, was already out there. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, 
Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not increase. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's Paul's message in Romans 13. It's a message to do the best we can as long as it follows God's Word to support the government. But when it fails to support God's Word, we're called to stand strong and to speak God's Word. And so Daniel made an important decision. He made a decision that could have cost him his life. And you can read about it. I'm going to go ahead and read it real quick. I'm going to read fast, so listen fast. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths are of his own age, of your own age? So you would endanger my head a lot from the king. And then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away the food and the wine and they were to drink and gave them their vegetables. I know, Matt, that's not making you happy. (laughs) It could have cost him his life. Perhaps Daniel's abstinence indicates his limit to the assimilation. Daniel didn't want to become addicted to that pleasureful life of the court. He he was afraid maybe it would help him or cause him to lose his spiritual focus. Now I believe the reason was probably more subtle than simple allegiance to the Levitical dietary laws. Because there is no Levitical dietary law that prohibits the drinking of wine. And not only that, but vegetables were also offered as idols, as food to the idols, because they were grain offerings. So it wasn't it wasn't that. It was more subtle than that. He's wanting to make sure that he is not going to be seen as assimilating into this lifestyle. You know, and this brings up an important principle. A lot of times we lose wars because we don't choose our battles wisely. So what if they called him a different name? 
So what if he went through this education? When I went to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I had people from Lincoln Christian College say, you leaving the brotherhood? No, I'm not leaving the brotherhood. When I studied at Indiana University, I didn't become a humanist. Sometimes we have to choose our battles wisely. And Daniel is presented here as a model of being a faithful witness due to the attractiveness of his life, the graciousness of his resistance. He didn't demand. He asked, verse 18. He said, please test, verse 12. And so he won their favor. And what happened next was an absolutely amazing display that eventually impressed and won the favor of the king. Their vegetarian diet and water allowed them to flourish and God blessed them and they were also given additional gifts. Now here's, I think, an important thing for you and I to hear. Intellectual development and true success can be achieved without spiritual compromise. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be without tough trials. Recent news. I'm not making this stuff up. Polk State College in Florida. A humanities professor named Lance Russum gave a student a zero on an exam because the student treated Christianity as a serious philosophical worldview. Another Manhattan, New York professor cursed at pro-life students. And another student was given a zero for using the phrase biological woman. Even though that professor said that the project was sound. But because the student refused to take out that phrase, biological woman, the student was given a zero. See, Paul would remind us that God makes foolish the wisdom of the world and perfects His strength where His people seem the weakest. 1 Corinthians 1. So guess what? An excellent discovery was made along the way. You'll have to finish reading verses 17 to 20. The discovery is that these young Hebrews excelled and because they excelled, they were placed in positions of authority over the others. And guess what? That didn't make the others real happy. And we're going to see that when we come to chapter 3. And so we come to the concluding comment of chapter 21, or verse, verse chapter 1, verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That, my friends, is not a chronological historical statement. That is a theological statement that says, guess what? Daniel succeeded when a lot of those kings were rising and falling. And he made it through several of those kings all the way up to his being able to see the restoration that had been promised and the people being returned from exile back to Jerusalem. 
he was able to see the victory. And the first year of Cyrus, 538, actually begins the restoration. You can read that by going and looking at Nebuchadnezzar that we've, I mean, uh, uh, Ezekiel uh, that we've already read and studied and that returned with Ezra. Uh, so when king, the king of Babylon was long dead, Daniel was still able to serve his people uh, as they were being restored. So, here's my challenge in chapter 1. We need to be encouraged as the church to recognize the critical importance of living out the faith in the world while not being of the world. I was pleased, Marty and Diane. I was pleased to go to a reception where the drinks were Cokes and Sprites and water and lemonade and tea. Because that's not often the case anymore. We tend to feel like we've got to look like what's going on in the world. Now, I'm not an abolitionist, as you all know. But there still is the importance of our witness. And the first chapter of Daniel has shown us that success without compromise was possible even in the midst of captivity. Daniel and his friends stood against the culture when it threatened to compromise their integrity before God. And as a part of our takeaway, we should also include a challenge to stand up against the destructive teachings, the curriculum that has an agenda that is being fed to our youth. I'm not even going to go there. But I, I refuse to allow some of the books that were on the book list in the elementary school that I was teaching at in Louisville to even be in my class. We also need to take a stand against the rampant materialism. We're living in a society that worships money, worships things, and looks down on people that don't have money and don't have things. We need, we need to move beyond that. Figure out how we can live out the faith in the world without being of the world. Let's pray.